0: Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information tools and strategies. This leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. Today's well source is Jenny Hecht. Jenny is a licensed clinical social worker and certified yoga teacher with over 20 years of experience working with middle and high school age youth and adults in a variety of settings. Her practice is grounded in strengthening distress tolerance skills through mindfulness practices and a supportive examination of the thought processes that limit an individual's potential. Her approach is relational and client-centered with a focus on specific goals for each individual and working together in partnership toward those goals. She has a passion for supporting the social-emotional needs of neurodivergent individuals and consulting with professionals who work with this population. Jenny participates in expert panels, provides keynote presentations and workshops, talks to parents, does professional development within school districts, and is a trainer for a curriculum called Sources of Strength. She also sits on the board of directors for Collie's Closet, a nonprofit peer education organization that educates students about depression and suicide. So welcome, Jenny. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So um, I thought we could start with telling us a little bit about your work with youth and families. You've been doing this for a long time, and I've followed your career for a few years. What do you think it is that makes children feel safe and secure?
1: Well, it's a, a very big question nowadays. Um, I think the feeling of being safe and secure largely comes from what is modeled by the caretakers in a young person's life. And historically, the feeling of safety and security has created a foundation for feeling safe and secure. So if my parents seem to see, feel safe and secure in the world and they provide for all my basic needs and I feel like you know they can keep me safe, great. But it's become abundantly apparent in the last several years that children are gaining a greater understanding that their parents are not the end all and be all and cannot necessarily guarantee their safety. And I think particularly on top of COVID in our community, we had the Marshall Fire, which was really the thing that prompted me to create this presentation because I had a 14 year old client who said to me, when we moved to the Harper Lake area, My parents told me we live in the safest place possible. The fire department's right here. The police department's right here. And now we have no home. And her words that she always felt so safe and secure because her parents promised her and that idea that that could be just pierced and deflated so quickly really has changed my concept of how children feel safe and secure. And now I believe it's more about transparency about parents admitting that they are also unsure and scared in moments of stress. Like when we were evacuating for the Marshall Fire, I remember coming out of my house and my daughter stopped in our parking lot and started crying. And I turned around and she said, mom, what if we lose everything? And every fiber of my being as a parent wanted her to feel safe and secure in that moment and say, it's going to be fine. We're going to be okay. But I knew that there was no way that I could guarantee that I had absolutely no idea in that moment. And fortunately, I was able to kind of access that therapist knowledge in my brain in that moment of stress and say to her, I'm scared too. And no matter what we have each other and we will get through whatever presents itself. And so I feel like now safety and security for children really comes from parents being willing to be vulnerable and humble and a little bit transparent about the way that they make decisions to help kids understand that in this world, the ideas of control and certainty are complete myths. And um, early in COVID, I saw a quote that really, that also informed this concept, that was um, that we were collectively experiencing emotional withdrawal from the myths of certainty and control, the addiction. I left out that word. (laughs) So we were experiencing emotional withdrawal to the addiction of the myths of certainty and control. And so I think the idea of what children, what helps children feel safe and secure has really changed a lot over my lifetime. When I was young, parents could just say, it's going to be fine. And for the most part, even though we never had certainty and control, the world was a different place. And now I think we really have to be honest with kids, that it's more about probability than certainty. And it's also about coping ahead and making sure that you have support systems that you feel confident are gonna be with you no matter what happens.
0: Wow, yeah, it's interesting you say that because when I read (laughs) the title of your upcoming talk, as a developmentalist, I immediately went to how when we have young children, we really are in control of a lot of their behavior, not necessarily their behaviors, but what's available to them. And and we can pull things back if we don't want them to do things. As they get older, then we we inevitably have to face that our children are getting older. They're spending time with their friends and other people's families. So you don't have as much control over their lives. But this is like a whole nother level. It feels like a layer of an onion to me that our kids are growing up at a time where they are faced with what's a normal growth and development and and blossoming of their thought processes what they're able to understand and then we let, we add this layer of complexity of the depth of the things that they have to learn to understand and um, certainly i think that leaves parents feeling a little bit helpless and scared um, is that something that you feel like you see a lot is parents that are just struggling not sure how to have these conversations with their kids about such big topics Oh,
1: absolutely. In fact, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of parents of teenagers right now are Gen X. And I was talking with someone recently about how our whole knowledge of the world when we were growing up was the Encyclopedia Britannica set in our parents' basement. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like anything you yep. needed to know, you could go look it up, and there was a nice, concise description. You could trust that that was the information. Right. And now, the amount of information available to young people is truly overwhelming. I mean, the, the primitive nervous system that we have was really designed to manage the intake of information and energy from communities of 150 to 200 people. And we are now living with those same nervous systems in a world where not only are we surrounded by many more people, but the internet, which is, There's no way that I will ever vilify social media and the the internet. There is so much benefit to those tools in our world and for our young people and for connection, But it also has created a world that is much harder for parents to manage for their children. And, you know, I feel with a 17-year-old daughter, um, the last several years, we've really had to lean into a lot of trust and belief in what the foundation that we've set with her and let her go out and experience the world and natural consequences so that she can develop the resiliency herself. I mean, that's how we develop resiliency is by going through hard things. And I think for parents, as this world has gotten bigger, we want to protect more and more. And when we protect, we are preventing our children from from developing natural resiliency. And so, I think it's it's a really big challenge for parents nowadays, particularly because we grew up at a time when our world was very small, and our parents could, you know, hide the newspaper if they didn't want us to see something or you know not watch the news till we were asleep. And now it's just there's there's really no way it's been breached. the The dam has been breached. And yeah. we really have to be able to say to our kids, yeah, this is a scary world. Sure, climate change is very frightening. All of the things that when our kids come to us and say cuz I have young clients come to me all the time saying like why am I bothering trying in school when our planet is, you know, going to implode. And the answer that we used to give was everything's going to be fine because we really could believe that. And now we can't just say that. So what I say, what I have to say to my clients and to my daughter is, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen in the future. There's a lot of indicators. There's a lot of clues. There's a lot of information, but really why we're on this planet is to experience being live. And you have five senses and you get to experience all those five senses as a human being. And you get to create community and you get to create beautiful art and music and literature and consume it all. And, That's what we need to be doing because the idea of planning for a future has become much more elusive. And I think there's a a huge shift in the kind of means to an end thinking that we had growing up. This blueprint of just follow this map and you'll have the American dream and you'll have success. And now the cynicism from young people which is very hard for i think a lot of Gen X and older parents to kind of hold and and respond to because it's not what we grew up with but it's warranted it's very real there's you know the horizon line looks very very blurry to them so responding in a way that honors that but also balances it with instead of living the time that we have with a sense of, of cynicism that will affect our quality of life adversely. What can we do to make meaning and to enjoy being here and to enjoy the pieces of our life that we do have control over, which are the choices that we make, the people we choose to surround ourselves with um, and the reasons why we make choices, right? Instead of a means to an end, like my daughter right now is trying to choose a career and she's going through this whole like, well, this doesn't make a lot of money, but this is what I really want to do. And we're at a time in life, I think, on this planet where doing what's meaningful is far more important than following that kind of idea to success
0: that we've always followed before. What you're saying is um, so critical to like how we experience ourselves rather than the if I do this, I can have this. And when I do that, I can have this. And when I do that, I can have this. Like I get the job, I get the house, I build the family, that it's more about day-to-day life, day-to-day experiences and being present to what your purpose is really on earth. And, and that's a, a completely different conversation and kind of a heavy one. How do, how do you feel like parents that, um, that don't have this kind of conversation in their regular day-to-day life how do they embrace this? How, how do you work with people to get that message out and to help them learn how to be present in that kind of a different way with their children?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's definitely challenging at times um, because family culture and the way that people were raised themselves informs the way that they parent. And I certainly do not assume that I am you know, the expert on parenting whatsoever. I mean- Certainly, my my daughter would tell you otherwise. (laughs) They always do. (laughs) Experiences over the last few years, Um, but I think it's we really have to be adaptable as human beings, and I think COVID really showed us that we can be adaptable, even when we don't want to be. And I think the the problem is that for generations, parents have felt a sense of satisfaction being able to assure their children a sense of security for their future, whether it was through intergenerational wealth or legacy in colleges or, you know, whatever it is. I think there's a a desire as parents to hand down a sense of security to your child. And of course, there are so many people who are not in a position to be able to do that and to really live in that day-to-day survival place. Um, And so our world has really, I feel like, become divided into people who have to survive day to day and people who don't, right? Because they have that foundation mm-hmm. of intergenerational wealth. But what I'm noticing is that even with the financial security or you know the foundations that intergenerational wealth, whatever it looks like, can provide us, everyone has the same uncertainty, right? Everyone does. You know, the, the idea of like food insecurity that used to be a socioeconomic challenge is now, you know, with climate change, we don't know what's going to happen to crops. We don't know what what our food system is going to look like. Everyone is starting to experience this feeling of insecurity about our future. So I think it's, what I'm noticing is it's really shifting a lot of people's lenses that they're looking at the whole world and everyday experiences through. How I help people with that is, I think parents get really scared nowadays because the narrative of all of the parenting lessons that have been presented to us over the years really does not work for a lot of what is presented to us now. Um, And I think the idea of of ensuring your child that they're going to be okay is a perfect example, right? When they're little, they look to us when they fall. And if we say, oh, my God, they cry, right? And if we say, oh, you're okay, they get up. But that doesn't work throughout the lifespan. And it doesn't work in adolescence now. And and parents are being presented with questions that they don't know how to navigate. Like, why should I be doing my homework when the world is going to implode? And so they'll come to me and go, can you get my kid to focus on what they need to focus on? And my answer is no, I, I don't have that capacity. But what I can do is try to help you figure out what your child needs to be talking about in order to feel heard and in order to feel like their nervous system can downshift enough to focus on the tasks they have to do on a daily basis because they're allowed to think about these bigger pictures. We can't just take that away and say, you're going to be fine just focus on your homework because children know when they're being lied to hmm. and yeah. they, no one wants to be lied to right? And the dissonance between a parent's words and the energy that they're getting off is significant. In that moment, when we were evacuating from the Marshall Fire, if I had turned to my daughter and said, we're going to be fine, and she could feel that in my body, I felt like anything but. How yeah. could she trust me? And how could her attachment then extend to other caregivers in her life that she is going to trust when they assure that she, her safety? So if we're able to say, I don't know what's going to happen. I I don't know if I feel safe. I don't know if I can in- ensure that I can keep you safe, but I know that we are going to talk openly about our feelings and we're going to support each other through whatever presents itself. It's a completely different paradigm than what we grew up with. Parents were gods when we were children and what they said went and now it's there's so many influencing voices and kids are very aware of what's happening in the world. And we have to honor that. We can't just
0: get it down and say, do your homework. <laughs> yeah. Not the same right now. Yeah. There's so no, much of what no. you said. You, even if you look at the happiness study that's been going on for years, you know, they, they talk about how money doesn't bring happiness that it comes from right. being in community and contributing. Um, and so, giving our kids those kind of opportunities to feel like they have meaning that they can, they can participate in things that they contribute to and they make a difference in the world is something that I've read a lot about. And I think it's, it's embedded in what you were talking about that we need to find those ways that our kids can get their energy out doing things that have meaning to them.
1: Absolutely. And even when they're small, like I remember when my daughter was very small um, and there was the earthquake in Haiti And you could text to a number to give, to give money. And she heard us talking about that. So she had a play cell phone and she was walking around the house one day. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm sending water to Haiti. And Mm. she knew what was going on at a very young age. And it gave her instead of protecting her from it. She was hearing about this, even at that young age. And so we gave her the capacity to feel some sense of empowerment and purpose. And Mm. that softened the edges of the fear that she was experiencing about something bad happening in the world. Um, And I think that's a big piece of it is we feel a very big sense of powerlessness right now because the problems that we're facing, not just in our society, but globally feel so big and so overwhelming that we just want to kind of shut off and ignore it. And we can't. And I think when I, for example, when I speak to young people in high school about their future plans, I don't say, what do you want to do for a career? I say, what are some of the problems in the world that you're hoping to help solve? Because then they can think about how can I be of service? How can I contribute to this world? And often when I ask that question, they'll pause and go, huh, Nobody's asked me that before. And I think it's a very big paradigm shift for this generation. And that the idea of the purpose of our lives, not being about necessarily the long game, but what can I do right now to enjoy today, to be of service today, to be in community today? We are all about our Google calendars, right? (laughs) Years and years we can plan in our neat little boxes. And then something like COVID can happen and there it all goes. So instead of focusing on planning, and I have parents who come to me with small children already worried about college. Like, no, we have to narrow that lens and give these kids the experience and understanding that being in a human body is a gift. And having five sentences as a gift and being in this world and being in community and being able to create and think and consider and problem solve, those are the elements of being human that are important and that we need to focus on. And I think that provides a lot of my clients and it seems to provide my daughter with a sense of ease because there's a lot less pressure for that long-term planning and a lot more focus on identifying what I feel now and figuring out what I need to address those feelings and being in community and not being afraid to ask for help. I think these are the things that are really the most
0: important aspects of our life right now. Yeah. Wow. I love what you said about being a human is a gift. Like it just shifts everything to think about it from that perspective that you have this opportunity. I think that so much of what we're talking about, I feel like existed before all of this change. Like even the thing about being a perfect parent that you mentioned earlier, like, of course you're not a perfect parent because none of us were perfect parents. No one is a perfect parent, but this just brings everything just really to light that you can't even spend time there right now, that being a perfect parent, isn't the goal that being teaching different coping skills, teaching someone how to be socially, emotionally aware and take care of themselves, all of those things that we talk about, but now they just matter at a different level. That's what I hear Mm -hmm. at least is that these aren't new conversations per se, but they are conversations that we are now talking about differently and have to pay more attention to. Absolutely. In fact, um, when I was doing my research for this presentation,
1: one quote that I came up on from... um, an article about helping kids feel calm said, you don't need to look for the answer to their anxiety. You are the answer. And mm-hmm. shortly after seeing that quote, um, I was listening to an interview with Michelle Obama. And she was talking about how when she was growing up, anytime that she would communicate with her mom about problems at school, socially or otherwise, um, her mom would say, come home. We will always like you here. And she said, it's a brilliant way of refusing to either try to change other people or the world to like your kid or make your kid feel safe or to change your kid to be more likable. Instead, it's just offering your very self as a safe, accepting, celebratory sanctuary from the unpredictable, uncontrollable world, right? And she said, you know, you have a place to come where people are glad to see you. They're happy to hear your voice. They're happy that you're alive. It didn't take away the pain, the fear, the hurts of the world, but it gave me a safe place to land, to lick my wounds, to build up my courage, to go back out to the inevitable chaos. What I love about that, Shelley, is that, um, you know, I have a lot of clients who will say to me like, I come home from the end of my day, particularly I had an adolescent female client say this to me and it blew my mind. She said, I walk the halls all day feeling stares from peers, feeling, you know, stares from adults, feeling like I have to mask, feeling like I have to hold all this stuff all day until I get home and can let down. And when I walk through the door and the first thing that it is said to me is you need to empty the dishwasher or why didn't you do your homework? I saw an infinite campus. You have a missing assignment. It's jarring. What we need to provide for our children is a sanctuary at home. Does that mean they shouldn't have chores and responsibilities? Absolutely not. But when they get home, for example, can we just create a container for their letdown for them to either tell us about their day or not, if they don't want to, and to let them have buffer and a space to transition from being out in a world that is so full of, 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 very stimulating energy. And before we say, hey, now you're part of this system in this community and you have responsibilities. And I think that was really eye opening for me. And I came home that day and I said to my daughter, Do you feel this way? And she started crying. And she said, Yes, I do. When I come home and you remind me of my chores, I feel like I don't have a moment to exhale. So as parents, really now, I think providing our children with a safe place to land and knowing that we don't need to do anything but be there to see them, to hear them, and to hold space. We don't have to offer advice. In fact, that's often not really welcomed. Um, <laughs> we, don't have to do we don't have to do anything but say, I hear you. It's hard. And I'm here. That's it. Yeah it's profound.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. I I once had a kiddo tell me that when, when their parent talked about feeling like they weren't perfect, that they weren't doing things right, that the way that they interpreted that themselves was something's wrong with me if you feel like you aren't doing things right. So there's that level of reflection that when we're trying so hard to be perfect or do everything right, not providing that space, um, or being critical that the child then takes that in and it becomes their problem and not your problem. So I think yes. we we have this dance that we have an opportunity or a choice on what, what we put on our children. How are they going to reflect with our own actions and behaviors,
1: which oh, I think absolutely. that's part of what you
0: talk about. Yeah. The talk, to- the conversation about regulation and you know, creating that space and helping your child regulate so that they can get back in their body—I think that's part of what you you share in your talk. But I just I found that profound as well. Just hearing that your obsession with things being perfect means that I'm not good enough, basically.
1: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. And I think that's the most common experience as human beings is are not enough statements. Every single human being that I know, either personally or professionally, believes that they are not enough of something. And that's the scarcity mindset that we have in the society. I mean, if you think about it, most of us wake up in the morning and think, oh, my God, I have too much to get done today. I don't have enough time and I didn't get enough sleep. And we go to bed thinking I didn't get enough done today and I'm not going to get enough sleep. So it's like we're constantly in this not enough place. And we pass that on to our children. Right? It's just it's a gift that we don't really want to give, but we do end up giving and so, when I talk about regulation um, in the history of the world, I feel very confident saying this: in the history of humanity, a dysregulated adult has never regulated a dysregulated child. It it doesn't happen. Right? Like yeah. we have to be able to regulate, and sometimes that means being transparent. So, like the example that I often offer educators is: listen, if you're in the middle of teaching and there's an unexpected fire drill and you're now stressed because you can't get through the lesson and you have to pivot, say that out loud, say, Oh, I did not know this was going to happen. Now I have to think about when we're outside, how I'm going to you know, restructure the lesson so we can get everything done because that's how kids learn. Oh, adults have to do that too. Adults need to figure things out too. And if we're transparent at home, in a way that is appropriate for our children right like we never want um to fight in front of our children but it's okay for children to hear us disagree and how we work through those disagreements and big family decisions always being made behind closed doors doesn't allow children to see how adults make choices and maybe they can't participate in the conversation Um, but we can hear their thoughts and then say, thank you for sharing those with us. This is what we're actually going to do. So we have to really find a way to balance, you know, again, our generation and older was raised in a world where children were to be seen and not heard in many cases and, you know, let the grownups make decisions. But how do kids learn how to be adaptable and resilient in this society if they cannot see the role models in their lives doing it as well? And so that transparency, not just about how we feel, but also about how we problem solve is incredibly important. And the way that connects to regulation is if I'm dysregulated and I can tell my child, then there's that congruence again in what they see, not just about when we're worried or stressed, but if I'm angry at my child and I say, I'm feeling really angry right now and I don't feel Like I can appropriately deal with this with you right now. So I'm going to go to my room and I'm going to sit for about 10, 15 minutes and try to regulate my body, whatever language you use. And then I'm going to come back and try to talk to you again, because it's not fair for me. It's not fair to you for me to try to problem solve this right now. If we can be that vulnerable and transparent, which is so hard Particularly right now for the parents that are um, raising teenagers and younger, that's not what our childhood was like. So it's a paradigm shift that is really challenging. Because being a parent, we want to be like, we're the grown up and we know what we're doing and you just go play. And we just can't do that anymore.
0: Yeah. You know, because it's such a big paradigm shift, one of the things that I've shared with parents a lot is, you don't have to do this every time, but you can practice. It's going to get easier and easier and easier to have these kind of conversations. And I think, you know, it's one of those things we do as as parents is we think, okay, I'm going to do things like this now. And then, and then you inevitably fall into the traps of the way you've always done things. So I think mm-hmm. we have to give ourselves grace and patience and understand that That's huge we're going to get, we're going to get there, but we're modeling for our children how to get there even that piece is important, right? Yes. And when we do inevitably mess up,
1: quote unquote, (laughs) that is another opportunity to go back to our children and say, I'm really not proud of how I handled that. This is what I was feeling and I didn't manage it the right way. And I am sorry that I allowed that to happen or to come out of me. And there's nothing more disempowering than feeling hijacked by your emotions. So you know the, One of the things that I really base my work on is the Victor Frankl quote about there's a space between stimulus and response. In that space lies the power to choose our response. And in that choice lies our growth and our freedom. That is the foundation of my clinical work is I say to people, what I want for you and our work is for you to not feel disempowered by your emotions. And so I do a lot of emotional literacy, helping people have the language for the granularity of what they are experiencing emotionally so that they can express it and be heard and learning how to recognize when we are stimulated or triggered and to take the space that we need so that we can make a choice. Instead of telling our children make good choices, you could tell them make choices because what that implies is slow down and don't do things impulsively and don't let yourself be hijacked. And it doesn't put the pressure on them of what a good choice is. So when we instill in our children the trust that if they slow down and find that space, we trust in their decision-making and we also model that for them, there's
0: profound power in that. Yeah. Yeah. And then if the choice is, is, it is, if they make a different choice, then you just work with them to shift and pivot. Like you said, the way totally. we have to do every day of our life. let make those shifts and pivots. <laughs> um, this is a question. I love to ask this question of everybody I talk to because um, the answer to me is always so profound and varies. Um, what do you think it takes? What's the most important way that we as adults can show up for children? I think the
1: first thing that comes to mind is treat them like human beings. Um, Children are deserving of that and they do not need to be patronized. Um, I have had a lot of clients say to me, I hate when adults make their voices high and tilt their heads and go, oh, hi, how are you doing? And particularly... (laughs) (laughs) particularly when they get to be like, you know, nine is a very significant age, right? Around nine is when kids start to enter into that who am I phase of life. Um, I'm a big fan of Eric Erickson's model of the six questions we answer in in our human development. And the first nine years of life, they're pretty concrete. Um, Am I okay? Is this a safe place to be? What can I do? How well can I do it? But at nine, we enter into who am I? And then, of course, who am I really, which I think is what we think is the midlife crisis. Um, And so it's a really important time for them to feel valued as human beings and for us to not dismiss the things that they say or the ideas that they have. Or, you know, I think a lot of adults tend to unwitting or unintentionally Patronize and belittle children. And all they need is to feel seen and heard, right? We don't have to take their ideas. We don't have to manifest whatever it is that they want. But being dismissive gives them a sense of being devalued. And in order Mm -hmm. to really navigate the challenges that we have in this world, we have to be able to trust ourselves. And if we have been given a message of being devalued, we're not going to trust ourselves. So I think the most important thing to me is to treat children like human beings. Again, that does not mean giving them decision making power. That does not mean it, it means age appropriate responsibility, but treating them like human beings that just happen to be chronologically born later than us.
0: <laughs> wow, I hear that and I think that's how I wanna feel, right? I wanna feel heard yeah. and seen for who I am and what I'm dealing with and what Absolutely. I contribute. So Kind of a i think a need that we all have to some extent Absolutely. well this has been really fun i feel like i want to just um cuddle up in a cushy chair in your office and keep talking <laughs> <laughs> it's been so, so great come to, on over uh,
1: anytime
0: <laughs> <laughs> to talk to you about this and um thank you for all the work you do and the ways that you share these little nuggets with people um Before we go, I I just want to ask you, is there anything else that you feel like we didn't talk about that you want to leave with parents today?
1: That We have to remember that um, the reality in our society is that we have very few words to describe how we feel. And um, most human beings have about five words, you know, like happy, sad, angry, excited, surprised. And I really believe that emotional literacy is incredibly important. So I encourage people to do things like, you know, Brene Brown came out with a book called Atlas of the Heart, where she explores 89 different emotions and groups them into like the places that we go when things are beyond our control. Um, I also use an app called How We Feel. It's a free app that was created by Mark Brackett, who wrote the book Permission to Feel. And a lot of my clients use it and share their check-ins with me. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a mood meter that um, is, you know, first you just pick a quadrant. Am I high energy or low energy? Do I have unpleasant or pleasant feelings? And then that quadrant opens up into all of these words for emotions that you can click on and not only see the definition of to determine, is this actually what I'm feeling? But then it also gives you strategies. in One to two minute videos, mm-hmm. strategies that to deal with. So I think when we think about the question, how are you, that we answer every day of our life in this world and we ask every day of our life, we really only give and expect one of three responses, some version of fine or good, some version of stressed or busy, some version of tired or exhausted, because those are the acceptable things in our world. And they also reflect how we celebrate productivity and exhaustion as a status symbol. And Mm if we were to be able to enhance all of our language so that we can more accurately for ourselves and for the people who love us and support us, identify what we're feeling and what we need, oh my gosh, I think that would be tremendous for all of us. Um, And then also common humanity is incredibly important because I am a therapist and I have been working with kids for almost 24 years. And there have been many times that I have lost my temper with my daughter over the 17 years of her life. And every time I felt deep shame. And if I could think to myself, every person on this planet who is a therapist, an educator, a doctor, who is a parent and raising their child and loses their temper, feels shame because we're supposed to know how to manage our emotions. Common humanity reduces our shame, which reduces our sense of being alone in this. So that's what I would love to leave people with is Mm -hmm. increase your your language for expressing your emotions and help your children do so as well. And also instill that idea of remembering that you are not alone in the experiences that you're having. That's the best part of being a therapist for me. Every time I Mm -hmm. sit with a client, I'm reminded that I'm not alone in my own emotional experiencing.
0: Thank you. Thank you for those tips. Um, Absolutely.
1: How can
0: people get a hold of you? What's the best way to reach you?
1: The best way to reach me is my website, which is jennyhecht.com, J-E-N-N-Y-H-E-C-H-T. Oh, my gosh. I just forgot how to spell my last name. (laughs) J-E-N-N-Y-H-E-C-H-T.com. And on there is my phone number, and you can send me an email through that. I also have a Facebook page, Still Rising, and I do a weekly live stream on Wednesday nights on that Facebook page.
0: Awesome, that's excellent. I will be sure to include all of that information in the show notes for people to be able to to find you and reach out and get involved. Perfect. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you again for being here. I can't wait to share this with parents and educators and professionals who work with youth and families. Before we go, I'd like to give a shout out to one of our biggest sponsors, uh, Premier Members Credit Union for their generous support. And please go check out what's going on with Penn. You can go to our website at www.penbv.org. And if you were inspired by today's conversation and the work we do at Penn, there's always options to either become a donor, make a one-time donation, get involved in service. We're always here to accept any and all help uh, that that you're willing to give. Um, We hope today's conversation has added to your parenting well and that all the information and insights shared today are going to help you in raising healthy, happy humans. It's an honor to have you join us, and until next time, happy parenting.